Section 2 of Nightmare Planet by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The sun was very near. It shone upon the top of the cloud bank, and the clouds glowed with a marvelous whiteness. It shone upon the mountain peaks where they penetrated the clouds, and the peaks were warmed, and there was no snow anywhere, despite the height. There were winds here where the sun shone. The sky was very blue. At the edge of the plateau where the cloud bank lay below, the mountainside seemed to descend into a sea of milk. Great undulations in the mist had the seeming of waves which moved with great deliberation toward the shores. They seemed sometimes to break against the mountain wall where it was cliff-like, and sometimes they seemed to flow up gentler inclinations like water flowing up a beach. All this was in the slowest of slow motion, because the cloud waves were sometimes miles from crest to crest. The look of things was different on the plateau, too. This part of the unnamed world, no less than the lowlands, had been seeded with life on two separate occasions, once with bacteria and molds and lichens to break up the rocks and make soil of them, and once with seeds and insects' eggs and such living things as might sustain themselves immediately upon hatching. But here on the heights the conditions were drastically unlike the lowland tropic moisture. Different things had thriven, and in quite different fashion. Here molds and yeasts and rusts were stunted by the sunlight. Grasses and weeds and trees survived instead. This was an ideal environment for plants that needed sunlight to form chlorophyll, and chlorophyll to make use of the soil that had been formed. So here was vegetation that was nearly earth-like, and there was a remarkable side effect on the fauna which had been introduced at the same time and in the same manner as down below. In coolness which amounted to a temperate climate, there could be no such frenzy of life as formed the nightmare jungles in the lowlands. Plants grew at a slower tempo than fungi, and less luxuriantly. There was no adequate food supply for large-sized plant-eaters. Insects, which were to survive in sunshine, could not grow to be monsters. Moreover, the nights were chill. Many insects grow torpid in the cool of a temperate zone night, but warm up to activity soon after sunrise. But a large creature, made torpid by cold, will not revive so quickly. If large enough, it will not become fully active until close to dusk. On the plateau, the lowland monsters would starve in any case, but more, they would have only a fraction of a day of full activity. There was a necessary limit, then, to the size of the insects that lived above the clouds. The life on the plateau would not have seemed horrifying at all to humans living on other planets. Save for the absence of birds to sing, and lack of a variety of small mammals, the untouched sunlit plateau with its warm days and briskly chill nights would have impressed most men as an ideal habitation. But Burl and his companions were hardly prepared to see it that way at first glimpse. Certainly, if told about it beforehand, they would have viewed it with despair. But they did not know beforehand. They toiled upward, their leader moved by such ridiculous motives as have sometimes caused men to achieve greatness throughout all history. Back on earth, two great continents were discovered by a man trying to get spices to conceal the gamey flavor of half-spoiled meat. The power that drives a mile-long spacecraft, and that lights and runs the cities of the galaxy, was first developed because it could be used in bombs to kill other men. 
There were precedents for Burl leading his fellows into sunshine merely because he was angered that they ceased to admire him. The trudging, climbing folk were high above the valley now. The thin mist that was never absent anywhere had hidden their former home little by little. They climbed a steeply slanting mountain flank. The stone was mostly covered by ragged, bluish-green rock tripe in partly overlapping sheets. Such stuff is always close behind the bacteria which first attack a rock face. On a slope it clings while soil is washed downward as fast as it forms. The people never ate it. It produced frightening cramps. In time they would learn that if thoroughly dried it can be soaked to pliability again and cooked to a reasonable palatability. But so far they knew neither dryness nor fire. Nor had they ever known such surroundings as presently enveloped them. A slanting, stony mountainside which stretched up frighteningly to the very sky. Grayness overhead, grayness also to one side, the side away from the mountain. An equal grayness below. The valley in which they lived could no longer be seen at all. Trudging and scrambling up the interminable incline, the people of Burl's personal following gradually realized the strangeness of their surroundings. As one result, they grew sick and dizzy. To them it seemed that the solid earth had tilted and might presently tilt further. There was no horizon, but they had never seen a horizon. So they felt that what had been down was now partly behind and they feared lest a turning universe let them fall ultimately toward the grayness they considered sky. In this frightening strangeness their only consolation was the company of their fellows. To stop would be to be abandoned in this place where all values were turned topsy-turvy. To go back, but none of them could imagine descending again to be devoured as one-third of their number already had been. If Burl had stopped, his followers would have squatted down and shivered together miserably and waited for death. They had no thought of adventure nor any hope of safety. The only goodnesses they could imagine were food and the nearness of other humans. They clung together, obsessed by the dread of being left alone. Burl's motivation was no longer noble. He had started uphill in a fit of sulks, and he was ashamed to stop. They came to a place where the mountain flank sank inward. There was a flat area, and behind it there was a winding canyon of sorts, like a vast crack in the mountain's substance. Burl breasted the curving edge and walked on level ground. Then he stopped short. The mouth of the canyon was perhaps fifty yards from the lip of the downward slope. There was this level space, and on it there were toadstools and milkweed, and there was food. It was a small, isolated asylum for life, such as they were used to. It could have been that here they could have found safety, but it wasn't that way. They saw the web at once. It was slung from between the opposite cliff walls by cables two hundred feet long. Its radiating cables reached down to anchorages on stone. The snare threads, winding out and out in that logarithmic spiral which men on other planets had noted thousands of years before, the snare threads were a yard apart. The web was set for giant game. It was empty now, but Burl searched keenly and saw the tightrope cable leading from the very center of the web to a rocky shelf some fifty feet above the canyon's floor. At its end he saw the spider. It waited there, 
almost invisible against the stone, with one furry leg touching the cable that led to its waiting place, so that the slightest touch on any part of the web would warn it instantly. Burl's followers accumulated behind him. They stared. They knew, of course, that a web spider will not leave its snare under any normal circumstances. They were not afraid of that. But they looked at the ground between the web and themselves. It was a charnel house of murdered creatures, half-inch-thick wing cases of dead beetles, the cleaned-out carcasses of other giants, the ovipositor of an ichneumon fly, six feet of slender, springy, deadly-pointed tube, and abdomen plates of bees and draggled antennae of moths and butterflies. Something very terrible lived in this small place. The mountainsides were barren of food for big flying things. Anything which did fly so high for any reason would never land on sloping, foodless stone. It would land here, and very obviously it would die. Because something, something, killed them as they came. It denned back in the canyon where they could not see. It dined here. The humans looked and shivered, all but Burl. He deliberately chose for himself a magnificent lance grown by one dead creature for its own defense. He pulled it out of the ground and cleaned it with his hands. He seemed absorbed, but he was terribly aware of the inner depths of the canyon. He was actually pretending for the sake of what he believed his dignity. Fearfully, the other humans imitated him in choosing weapons from the armory of the devoured. Then Burl stalked grandly to one side and began to climb again. His people followed him in numbed silence. They were filled with dread, but it was not quite terror. Insects do not stalk their prey. The deadly unseen monster of the canyon had not attacked them, therefore it did not know they were there, and therefore they were safe from it until it appeared, but none of them desired to stay. The slope lessened here, and half a mile further on there was a small thicket of mushrooms. From within it came the cheerful loud clicking of some small beetle, arrived at this spot nobody could possibly know how, but happily ensconced in a twenty-yard patch of jungle above a hollow that had gathered soil through the centuries. There were edible mushrooms in the thicket. The humans ate, naturally. And here they realized that they were no longer doomed by the creatures in the valley. Since their climb began, they had seen no dangerous thing except the one gigantic motionless web spider. They had left the valley and its particular dangers behind. A man exclaimed in naive astonishment. He was eating raw mushroom at the moment, and his mouth was full. But abruptly it occurred to him that their doom was lifted. He mentioned the fact in a sort of startled wonder. "'We will stay here!' he added happily. "'There is food!' And Burl regarded him with knitted brows. Burl was well on the way to becoming spoiled. He had tasted power over his folk, and he found himself jealous of any decision by anybody else. "'I go on,' he said haughtily. "'Now! You may stay behind if you wish. Alone!' He broke off food for the journey. He held out his hand to Saya. He went on. And again he went upward, 
because to go back was to go to the canyon of the unknown killer. And his folk docilely followed him. They did not really reason about it. To follow him had become a pattern more or less precarious. In time it could become a habit. Over a period of years it could even become a tradition. The procession marched on and up. Burl noticed that the air seemed clearer here. It was not the misty, quasi-transparent stuff of the valley. He could see for miles to right and left, and the curvatures of the mountain face. But he could not see the valley. Then he realized that the cloud bank he saw was finite, an object. He had never thought of it specifically before. To him it had seemed simply the sky. Now he saw an indefinite lower surface which yet definitely hid the heights toward which he moved. He and his followers were less than a thousand feet below it. It appeared to Burl that presently he would run into an obstacle that would simply keep him from going any further. But until that happened he obstinately continued to climb. The thing which was the sky appeared to stir. It moved. A little higher and he could see that there were parts of it which were lower than he was. They moved also. But they did not approach him, and he had no experience of anything inimical which did not plunge upon its victims. Therefore he was not afraid. In fact, a little later he observed that the whiteness retreated before him, and he was pleased. Weak things such as humans fled aside when predators approached. Here was something which fled aside at his approach. His followers undoubtedly observed the same phenomenon. He had killed a spider. He was a remarkable person. This unknown white stuff was afraid of him. Burl, with bland conceit, marched confidently through the cloud bank, ever climbing. At its thickest he could see only feet in each direction, but always when he advanced threateningly upon opacity it cleared before him. Presently the gray light grew brighter. Burl and his folk were accustomed to a shadowless illumination such as fungi could endure, the equivalent of a heavily overcast day on an Earth-type planet. Now the mist about him took on a luminosity which was of a different kind. Suddenly he noticed the silence. He had never known even comparative silence before in all his life. His ears had been assailed every minute since he had been born by a din which was the noise of creatures, by stridulations, by chirpings, by screams, or at the least by the clicking of armor or the deep-toned pulsations of wings. He had always lived in the uproar of frenzied struggle. Now that hellish chorus of shrieks and cries and mating calls was cut off. The lower surface of the cloud bank reflected it. Burl and his people moved upward through an unparalleled stillness. They fell silent, marveling. They heard each other's movements. They could hear each other's voices. But they moved in a vast quietness over stones which here were not even lichen-covered but glistened with wet. And all about them a golden glow hung in the very air. Stillness and quietude and golden light which grew stronger and stronger and stronger... It was very remarkable when they came up through the sea of mist upon a shore of sunshine and saw blue sky and sunlight for the first time. 
The light smote upon their pink skins and brilliantly colored furry garments. It glinted in changing, ever more colorful flashes upon the cloaks made of butterfly wings. It sparkled upon the great lance carried by Burl in the lead, and the quite preposterous weapons borne by his followers. The little party of twenty humans waded ashore through the last of the thinning white stuff which was cloud. They gazed about them with blinking, wondering, astounded eyes. The sky was blue, there was green grass, and there was sound. The sound was of wind blowing in the trees and sunshine. They heard insects, too, but they did not know what it was they heard. The shrill, small musical whirrings, the high-pitched small cries which made up a strange new elfin melody, were totally strange. All things were novel to their eyes, and an enormous exultation filled them. From deep-buried ancestral memories they knew that this was somehow right, was somehow normal, and they breathed clean air for the first time in many generations. Burl even shouted in triumph, and his voice rang echoing among rocks. The plateau rang with the shouting of a man in triumph. They had enough food for days. They had brought it from the isolated thicket not too far beneath the clouds. Had they found other food immediately, they would have settled down comfortably in the fashion normal to creatures whose idea of bliss is a secure hiding place and food on hand. Somehow they believed that this high place was secure, but it was not a hiding place. And though they did accept, with the simplicity of children and savages, that they had no enemies here, their first quest, nevertheless, was for a place in which they could conceal themselves. They found a cave. It was small to hold all of them, so that they would be crowded in it, but, as it turned out, that was fortunate. At some time it had been occupied by some other creature, but the dirt which floored it had settled flat and there were no recent tracks. It retained faint traces of an odor which was unfamiliar but not unpleasant. It had no connotation of danger. Ants stank of formic acid plus the musky odor of their particular city and kind. One could tell not only the kind of ant, but what hill they came from, from a mere sniff at a well-traveled ant trail. Spiders had their own hair-raising odor. The smell of a praying mantis was acrid, and of beetles decay, and of course those bugs whose main defense was smell gave off an effluvium which tended to strangle all but themselves. The cave smell was quite different. The humans thought vaguely that it might be another kind of man. Actually, it was the smell of a warm-blooded animal but Burl and his fellows knew of no warm-blooded creatures but themselves. They had come above the clouds a bare two hours before sunset, of which they knew nothing. For an hour they marveled, staying close together. They were astounded by the sun, more particularly since they could not look at it. But presently, being savages, they accepted it with the matter-of-factness of children. They could not cease to wonder at the vegetation about them. They were accustomed only to gigantic fungi and a few feverishly growing plants striving to flower and bear seed before being devoured. Here they saw many plants, and at first no insects at all. However, they looked only for the large things they were accustomed to. 
they were astounded by the slenderness of the plants. Grass fascinated them, and weeds. A large part of their courage came from the absence of debris upon the ground. In the valley, the habitation of a trapdoor spider was marked by grisly trophies, armor emptied of all meat, but not yet rotted by the highly specialized bacteria which flourished upon chitin. The hunting ground of even a mantis was marked by discarded transparent beetle wings and sharp spiny bits of armor and mandibles not tasty enough to be consumed. Here, in the first hour of their exploration, they saw no sign that any insect from the lowlands had ever come to this place at all, but they interpreted the fact quite correctly as rarity rather than complete absence of huge creatures blundering up into the sunlight. They were relieved that they had found a cave. There was no thicket of trees close growing enough to shelter them. They were ludicrously amazed when they found that trees were hard and solid, because the fungi they knew were easily cut by sawtoothed tools. They found nothing to eat, but they were not yet hungry. They did not worry about it while they still had bits of edible mushroom from their climb. When the sun sank low and the crimson colorings filled the western horizon, they shivered. They watched the glory of their first sunset with scared, incredulous eyes. Yellows and reds and purples reared toward the zenith. It became possible to look and gaze directly at the sun. They saw it descend behind something they could not guess at. Then there was dark. The fact stunned them. So night came like this. Then they saw the stars as they winked singly into being, and the folk from the lowland crowded frantically into the cave with its faint odor of having once been occupied. They filled the cave tightly, but Burl was somewhat reluctant to admit his fear, and Saya lingered close to him. They were the last to enter. Nothing happened. Nothing. The sounds of evening continued. They were strange but infinitely soothing and somehow what night sounds ought to be. Burl and the others could not possibly analyze it, but for the first time in many generations they were in an environment really similar to that intended for their race. It had a rightness and a goodness about it which was perceptible for all its novelty. And because Burl had once been lost from his tribe, he was capable of estimating novelties a little better than the rest. He listened to the night noises from close by the cave's small entrance. He heard the breathing of his tribesmen. He felt the heat of their bodies, keeping the crowded enclosure warm enough for all. Saya was close beside him. She held fast to his arm for reassurance. He was wakeful and thinking very busily and very painfully. Saya was filled with a tumult that was combined fear of the unknown and relief from much greater fear of the familiar, and warm, proud memories of the sight of Burl leading and commanding the others, and memories of the look and feel of sunshine, and pictures of sky and grass and trees which she had never seen before. Emotion-filled memories of Burl as he killed a spider flinging a ball fungus at a hatchling mantis saving a young boy, grandly leading the others up the mountainside which it had never occurred to anybody else to climb, keeping onward sternly 
when it seemed that the solid ground had twisted and would drop them into a misplaced sky. And now, between her and the doorway to the strange and very beautiful night outside, Saya felt an absorbed, impassioned, delectable disquiet from the touch of Burl's arm beneath her fingers. He stirred. She whispered a question. I am going out, he murmured in her ear. I wish to see the lights, to see if they come nearer or move. It had occurred to him that the first few stars they had seen glowed in darkness like the giant fireflies of the valley. They were comparable in size to all the enlarged insect kingdom. They were a yard and more in length, and sometimes at night they soared and wheeled above the lowland fungus jungles and the segmented larval females of their kind which never grew wings grew frantic at the sight. They climbed recklessly upon the flat tops of toadstools and waved their dimmer twinned lanterns at the flying males. But this was not the lowland. Burl freed his arm from Saya's fingers. He crept through the constricted opening of the cave, carrying his lance before him. He already had a vague idea that it should be not only an instrument, but a weapon. He imagined stabbing enemy creatures with it, but only vaguely as yet. He stood upright in the open air. There was coolness. Night had fallen, but only a little while since. There were smells in the air such as Burl had never smelled before, green things growing, and the peculiar clean odor of wind that has been bathed in sunshine, and the peculiarly satisfying fragrance of coniferous trees. But Burl raised his eyes to the heavens. He saw the stars in all their glory, and he was the first man in at least forty generations to look at them from this planet. There were myriads upon myriads of them, varying in brightness from stabbing lights to infinitesimal twinklings. They were of every possible color. They hung in the sky above him, immobile and unthreatening. They had not come nearer. They were very beautiful. Burl stared, and then he noticed that he was breathing deeply with a new zest. He was filling his lungs with clean, cool, fragrant air such as men were intended to breathe from the beginning, and of which Burl and many others had been deprived. It was almost intoxicating to feel so splendidly alive and unafraid. There was a rustling. Saya stood beside him, trembling a little. To leave the others had required great courage. But she had come to realize that if any danger befell Burl, she wished to share it. So she had come. They shared the starlight. They heard the night wind and the orchestra of night singers. They wandered aside from the cave mouth, and Saya found completely primitive and wholly atavistic pride in the courage of Burl, who was actually not afraid of the dark. Her own uneasiness became merely something to give more savor to her pride in him. She stayed close beside him, not only for reassurance, but also for joy in being close to him. Presently they heard a new sound in the night. It was very far away, and not in the least like any sound they had ever heard before. It changed in pitch. Insect cries do not. It was a baying, yelping sound, 
It rose in pitch and held the higher note and abruptly dropped in pitch before it ceased. Minutes later it came again. Saya shivered, but Burl said thoughtfully, That is a good sound. He didn't know why. Saya shivered once more. She said reluctantly, I am cold. It had been a rare sensation in the lowlands. It came only after one of the infrequent thunderstorms when wetted human bodies were exposed to the gusty winds that otherwise rarely blew there. But here the nights grew cold after sundown. The heat in the ground radiated to outer space at night, not being trapped by a layer of clouds. Before dawn the temperature would be close to freezing, though anything worse than a light, fleeting hoarfrost would be rare on this plateau. The two of them went back to the cave. It was warm there. The cave was so packed with humans that their body heat kept the air from growing chill. Burl and Saya crouched among the rest and became drowsy and comfortable. Presently Saya dropped off to sleep, her hand trustfully in Burl's. But he remained awake for a long time, blinking. He thought of the stars, but they were too strange. He thought of the trees and grass. But most of the impressions of this upper world were so remote from previous knowledge that he could only accept them as they were and defer reflection upon them until later. But he did feel an enormous complacency, what with having brought his followers to an effective paradise of safety and having arrived at a completely satisfactory emotional status with Saya. But the last thing he actually thought about, before his eyes blinked shut in sleep, was that yelping noise he had heard in the night. It was totally novel in kind, yet there was something buried among his racial heritages that told him it was good. End of section 2